So there's a lot packed into that little tiny bit of scripture. We could probably do a 10-week study on each verse in there. Resist. There has been a lot of discussion about resist lately. Hashtag resist. Is that Jimmy Fallon? Hashtag resist. Entire movements are being built around it. But here's Jesus telling us not to resist evildoers. What is a faithful Christian to do? Renowned scholar and theologian Walter Wink wrote a book in the 90s called The Third Way. The book is based on the idea that Aside from our only responses, you know, we think we can fight or we can flight, we can revolt or we can give in, Wink says that Jesus is teaching us a third way, a third way to respond. And actually, there are probably more than three ways, and if you're interested, uh, I put a list of 198 different ways to respond on that back table back there. So, but back to resist. We need to look at that word in verse 39. The word translated, and I didn't practice the Greek, and I apologize for that, but the word translated as resist is anti-sentinai, which means to stand against. Wink writes that this word is most often used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, and it's a technical term for warfare. So imagine, if you will, uh, the movie 300 or Troy or whatever, and there are battalions that are marching towards each other, and they meet in the middle. When they meet, this is where they take a stand. This is where they stand against one another. This is where they anti-sentinai. This is where they resist. So this word for resist means to fight. Jesus is telling us not to react with violent fighting. Do not resist. Do not retaliate with violence. And then he goes on to give some examples of nonviolent resistance. Why? So here, there are a few historical facts with Jesus and the Gospel of Matthew that will explain this nonviolent resistance. In 4 CE, there was a town called Sephorus that was decimated by the Romans. It was four miles away from Nazareth. Jesus was a little kid, probably no bigger than Rose's kids. And doubtless he saw it, and doubtless they told stories about how there was a Jewish uprising and the Romans squashed us. And then when Matthew was being written in 70 or 80 CE, the temple had just been destroyed. Where God lives was destroyed by the Romans. And so Matthew is writing and telling us about Jesus through the lens of a violent repression of a violent uprising. So Jesus is like, no. Nonviolence doesn't work. Let's not do that. So a couple of you, I can think of three people, maybe four, that were here. Um, Christian Pyatt offered a sermon based on Walter Wink's uh, discussion of the third way. And Jesus says that if somebody is going to strike you on the right cheek, you need to turn the other. So here's the thing about nonviolent resistance when somebody is striking you. Much like today, in first century Palestine, there were honor codes. There were certain things you could and couldn't do depending on who you were. Okay? So to be backhanded was to be humiliated and degraded. You didn't backhand somebody who was your equal. If you were going to tell a slave or your wife or your child or a subordinate to get back in line, 
what you were going to do is you were going to hit them with your backhand on their right cheek. So if they turn the other cheek, you can't backhand them because their nose is going to be in the way. Your only option is to hit them with your fist. And when you hit them with your fist, you raise them up to the level of being your equal. You only backhanded subordinates. When you fought with fists, you were fighting an equal. There are times that I love the message version, but this time the translation misses the mark. This is not an encouragement to be passive, but rather this is a way to mock what is going on. This is a way to mock the violence, to tell the person that is trying to cause you harm that you too are a human being. Now granted, you're probably going to get your butt kicked, right? If somebody's going to backhand you and you get smarmy, they're gonna, he's probably going to do it, but at least you have forced them to realize that you are a human being. If somebody wants to take your coat, sue you. Only poor people got sued. Rich people, landowners, didn't get sued. So if somebody is going to sue you and take your coat, you give them your cloak as well. Deuteronomy, and this is where Jesus gets this, Deuteronomy says that if a creditor sued you, they could only take your outer garment. Because if they took your inner garment, you'd be naked. right? And at the end of the day, they were supposed to give the outer garment back to you so that you could uh, have something to cover up in when you slept. Now here's the thing about being naked. If you're naked, the person, according to Genesis 9, if you are gazing upon somebody who is naked, you are the one who is being shamed. And so if somebody sues you for your coat and you give them your cloak and you stand before them naked, you are bringing forth the absurdity of the ridiculous penal system and you are bringing shame onto them. Go the extra mile. Roman soldiers could conscript anybody they wanted to just to carry their stuff. But the law said you could only have somebody do that for one mile. That's it. Right? You remember the story when Jesus is carrying the cross through town and the Roman soldier calls Simon and says, you carry his cross? Well, they could do that to anybody. They could only do it for a mile. So what Jesus is telling us is, if somebody does that to you, when you get to the end of the mile, keep going. Go the extra mile. Because what's going to happen is that Roman soldier is afraid of being taxed or being beaten by his uh, superior officer, depending... And the Roman soldier is going to say, wait, 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 stop, stop, stop. Don't do that. And that's going to show the absolute absurdity of the system. Right? So all of these are ways that we can resist. But they also bring to the forefront how just ridiculous our systems can be. Now, when you think of the... the find people sitting at the Woolworths counter. Who do you think looks more foolish? The people sitting at the counter who are trying to gain equality or the people who are dumping sugar and flour and coffee on them? That's the point of nonviolent resistance. It doesn't work all the time. It doesn't work perfectly. It takes a very long time. It's not quick at all. But there have been a few movements that have been Nonviolent resistance that have worked pretty well. Erica Chenoweth is an assistant, uh, she's an associate professor at Joseph Corbel School of International Studies at the University of Denver, 
and she's also an associate senior researcher at the Peace Institute in Oslo. And along with Maria Stefan, they co-wrote a report called Why Civil Resistance Works, The Strategic Logic of Nonviolent Conflict. And they examined over 300 different resistance movements from 1900 to 2006, and they found that campaigns of nonviolent resistance against authoritarian regimes were twice as likely to succeed as violent movements were. Why? Well, more people can get involved in a nonviolent movement, and there's safety in numbers. And the more people they are, the better those people are to vary their tactics, hence 198 different ways for nonviolent resistance on the back table. And there, if there are more people, their actions are less likely to be met with violence. Now, there have been times where you will be met with violence, but nonviolence resistance works. And in recent memory, we can think of a few different movements that resulted in change. Gandhi, for one. Um, Great Britain, uh, India was a subject of Great Britain, and, and salt is a major trade that they had, and Great Britain said, you Indians cannot sell or buy salt. And so Gandhi led his people on a 240-mile walk to the Arabian Sea, where they got just a little tiny handful of salt. 17 years later, they had their freedom from Britain. Suffragettes in 1913 were over 5,000 strong in the march in Washington, D.C. Seven years later, women had the right to vote. Seven years later, primarily white women had the right to vote. Uh, it took longer for non-white folks to be able to vote, in actuality, more so than in theory. Cesar Chavez, a grape boycott in the 70s, I suppose that a few of you remember that. Si, si puede, right? 2,000 farmers together demanded a minimum wage for underpaid Filipino farmers. And you know what happened? 17 million people in the United States joined that boycott. 17 million people joined that boycott. And they got unions, and they got better wages, and they provided security for their farm workers. In 1955, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat to a white guy on a bus, and that started the Montgomery bus boycott. A year later, the Supreme Court ruled that segregation on public buses was unconstitutional. So nonviolent resistance works. And after the examples of how to resist nonviolence from the outside, Jesus goes a little bit further and he tells us how we can resist violence on the inside. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Now I need to say a brief word about the I tell you buts. Because like so many parts of the New Testament, these phrases have been used over and over and over again to prove that the Jews were wrong and Jesus is right. But that's not exactly the case. Jesus isn't refuting the teachings. He is expanding on them. He's reminding people about what they already know. There is no place in the Torah that you will find the statement, hate your enemy. It's just not there. Scholar and theologian Amy Jill Levine reminds us that in Proverbs, we'll find the following. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Do not rejoice when your enemies fall, and don't let your heart be glad when they stumble. Now, 
Is it possible that some people were hearing hate your enemies and using texts to prove it? Oh, yeah. yeah. We do that today, right? Christians do that today, making theological pronouncements about what's not in Scripture. If Jesus were around today, we might hear him say something like, You have heard it said that God helps those who help themselves. But I say to you, give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. Or perhaps he would have said, You have heard it said that in order to find salvation, you must accept me as your personal Lord and Savior. But I tell you that salvation is more about community and less about individuality. So maybe people did hear, hate your enemies, but that phrase is not in the Torah. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. This is a tough one. This is really hard. For me, this is one of the most difficult things to do. And persecute is a pretty loaded word. I rarely feel persecuted. Nobody is threatening to chop off my head if I go to church. Nobody's telling me I can't come here. Nobody's writing laws that restrict my freedom of worship or my freedom of movement based on the fact that I'm a Christian. So I have to change it to pray for those you have resentments against. And when I'm not in a good mood, I change it to just pray for those people who piss you off. (laughs) In the directions to turn the other cheek and give our coats and walk the extra mile... Jesus is giving the oppressor an opportunity to see just how silly violence is. Giving them a chance to repent, as we've talked about, to turn around, to reorient themselves. And by telling us to love our enemies and to pray for those that we are angry with or afraid of or hurt by, Jesus is also giving us a chance to turn around and to change direction. Now I was told... Many of you probably know that I am in a 12-step program, have been for a while. And when I was like 20 years old, 22 years old, one of the first things that I learned was that the best way that I can get over a resentment of somebody is that I pray for them. I pray that they get in their lives what I want in mine. Or I pray that they are happy, like I want to be happy. Or I pray that God's light shines on them like I want God's light to shine on me. Or I pray for them that they feel the love and presence of God. There are times, though, that I want to pray that they see things my way. (laughs) I almost did it yesterday. I got into a discussion with somebody on social media, and he said something absurd, and I almost typed, I'll pray for you. (laughs) Right? That's more of like an insult (laughs) than it is an actual prayer. Right? Uh, You need to just, God, change their screwed up thinking, would you? Obviously, this guy is a jerk. But that's less than praying for somebody and more praying at someone. And Jesus didn't tell us to pray at people. We were to pray for people. And our anger with others, with institutions, with ideas, with ideologies, blinds us to the ways that we can be helpful. Our anger and our desire to demonize and to dehumanize leads us to forget that people on the other side are also God's children. When we love our enemies and when we pray for the people that persecute us, we sort of short-circuit that violence and that anger within us. We mute the desire 
for vengeance. Praying for them clears out the garbage and the yuck and begins to let the light of God's healing love shine. And that is the perfection that Jesus is talking about at the very end. Love your enemy. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now the word in Greek here does not mean to be without error. That's not the kind of perfection that Jesus is talking about. The word here means complete, whole, mature. And that's why we need to take this section as it is, as one big chunk rather than dissect it into individual verses in a Bible study. The rejection of violence is clear. Rejection of systems of violence by using creative resistance to them and rejection of retaliation by praying and loving others so that our desire for vengeance is stilled. We become what we do. We are affected by the actions that we take and the thoughts that we think. But when we can resist violence, when we refuse to succumb to it, and we can extend love to those who would want to cause us harm, we are made whole. We are complete. So resist. Not evil with evil, but with completeness, with wholeness, with maturity. Resist with love. Amen.